The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Welcome to the show, everyone, and special shout-out to my friend Yoshiko Dart, uh, who is a national disability rights leader, which we have with us today, a national disability rights leader, and I am always so excited uh, to have her with us. I'm going to tell you, she entered the disability community as we know it here in D.C., not that many years ago, and wow, that's it. I mean, we all know her, and she is making a difference nationally, but I've got to tell you, with her background, she's been making a difference for a very, very long time, but she is all about disability rights for people with disabilities. Uh, it's my pleasure to have with us today Jennifer Laszlo, Ms. Rahi, welcome to the show. It is so fabulous to be back with you, Joyce. You are such a superstar and mentor for all of us in this field, and I'm delighted to be with your listeners today and look forward to the conversation. Well, we look forward to having you uh, also, Jennifer. And, you know, certain people we try to bring back, and I know we'll have Jennifer on again next year, but that's because one thing that happens in the disability community is sometimes we don't keep up to date with our own history and our own current events and what's going on, and we really have to change that. Uh, and, Jennifer, I already mentioned about your background, which is just unbelievable. It's so impressive. I know I won't be able to go over everything, but I know over the years you've worked with the White House on many projects with different presidents. I know you have worked on elections of prime ministers and presidents around the world. I know you're saying... If you're listening, wow. Well, wow is right because she is like unbelievable, the things she has accomplished. You founded the Israel Project and you led it for a decade. How about this, folks? She's worked with ambassadors from over 85 different nations. As you can tell by listening, this is why she's been on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and other stations. And now you are well known nationally as a disability rights advocate. So, Jennifer, what led you down this path, which we're so happy you are with us, but what, what made you decide, hey, I'm going to focus on disability issues? Well, first of all, uh, Joyce, like yourself, um, I am a person with disabilities, and I think that it's very important that people who have the honor and privilege of serving in leadership um, capacities should self-disclose because, uh, you know, most disabilities are not visible. From looking at me, you would not know that I have a significant learning issue, that I'm dyslexic, and that I could not read or write until I was 12. Um, I was uh, fully grown in terms of my height at age 12, so I was already over 5 foot 10 and still could not read or write. And people thought I was older than I was, and I experienced a lot, a lot of bullying and uh, had some real self-esteem issues, I must say. Wound up in a situation on my campus where I was raped and sexually assaulted, which is something that happens, unfortunately, very frequently in uh, the disability community. So, you know, from my personal experience, I have a lot of passion about it. But really it was as a parent um, that I decided that I was going to do this professionally because as a parent, I know what it's like to raise a child 
with multiple disabilities and to see the bigotry and the lack of accommodations and acceptance in 2016, it's just simply not acceptable. It's not acceptable, and, it, and I really feel very passionate that we need to work together across all the disabilities, whether it's blindness or being deaf or, you know, autistic, or whether you have a learning difference or a sensory difference or a mental health difference, all of us face some of the same stigmas, some of the same bullying, some of the same, you know, real obstacles to employment that are so important to us. So I'm very passionate, as you know, like you, about this work. Wow. You are a powerhouse. I want to just make a few comments. First, um, as you know, Jennifer, but I know across the country, my listeners know, I, um, I too have a hidden disability, epilepsy. But what I was going to talk about is I am just so involved with youth with disabilities, high school students, that is just so important to me. And for 15 years now, I've been doing volunteer work. Uh, in Delaware and Pennsylvania with high school students with disabilities about leadership, uh, about keeping your muchness, uh, about how to get a job. And these young people continue following me for years. So for all of those young people listening right now who have been brutally bullied, look at this. Look at Jennifer. You heard all the great things she's done, which, let's face it, most people you won't even meet in your life that have accomplished and done all these great things. Look what she accomplished. Because, Jennifer, I've actually lost people to suicide in high schools that had learning disabilities, and as you are very well aware uh, from what happened to you, are, uh, you know, bullied and called stupid and dumb. And I just wonder if you could just take one second and have a word of encouragement for them. Look, I think that, first of all, that it happens far too frequently and that we shouldn't tolerate it so much and that we need to be more open about the need to aggressively fight against it. So children with disabilities are three times more likely to be sexually assaulted or raped than children without disabilities, number one. Number two, in America, every nine minutes, every nine minutes, an adult with a disability is sexually assaulted or abused. And for people with intellectual disabilities, cognitive disabilities, it's far more frequent, so much so that for half of adults with intellectual disabilities, they have been either raped or sexually assaulted ten times or more. So this is something that is absolutely pernicious and vicious, and we have to stand up and fight against it. Um, I do know exactly what you're talking about in terms of the mental health differences. I have lost three very dear friends to suicide. I have had other friends that have attempted suicide, and I have had years and years and years of being friends to pe- with people who have very significant mental health differences. But at the end of the day, we have to, like, really take care of ourselves. We have to own our own future. We have to focus on our strengths. If you only focus on the bad things, you know, you sort of bring yourself down. You have to focus on where is my talent, where are my abilities, who are my friends and my family that I love, that love me back, and that are going to be supportive of me with all of my differences, and I think that's what makes a big difference for me at least. And I must also say, Jennifer, that's terrible what happened to you uh, in college. It's absolutely terrible, terrible. I've had shows about this, uh, but that you went through all these things and then became such a kind, giving person, helping, is just so impressive. So... You know, my hat's off to you to be able to do all these great things you've done uh, since then, but I am really glad right now you're working on this, and maybe next year you and I are going to work together on this bullying thing somehow, uh, Jennifer. It would be great. But, but for right now, 
I want to talk about respectability, which has become so well-known across the United States. You are the president and CEO. I thought maybe you could tell our listeners about respectability, why was it founded, and what is your mission? So respectability really does just what its name says. We respect the ability of everyone. And we really try and promote the abilities of people with disabilities. So we're really working hard to reduce stigma um, that says that people with disabilities can't be successful. We believe that people with disabilities are equal to everybody else on earth, but that we offer many things where we're stronger. Because, you know, it's now in our DNA to always be finding workarounds. And those are innovative solutions because we have a disability that blocks us from doing one thing, but it doesn't block us from doing everything. So we're sort of natural innovators. So, you know, respectability uses a lot of innovation to try and fight the stigmas against people with disabilities. And we're really big advocates for what is your specialty, Joyce, which is employment of people with disabilities. Um, Because we know that even though it's now almost 26 years past the Americans with Disabilities Act, that only 34% of Americans with disabilities who are working age are working. That's only one out of every three working age people with disabilities has a job. And you were talking about your important mentorship of youth with disabilities. That is so important what you're doing because every single year, 300,000 young people with disabilities age into what should be the workforce. That's every year 300,000 young people. But the thing is that most of them are not getting jobs. And so what happens additionally, let me also point out, and I think it's really vital, that only 61% of high schoolers with disabilities actually get that diploma. That we're, you know, because of suspensions, because of bullying, because of a variety of reasons, People with disabilities are not finishing school. And so there's this 20-point gap where 81% of people without disabilities get that high school diploma and only 61% of people with disabilities. So one of the things that now we're focused on um, at respectability in addition to, um, to employment, which we care so very deeply about, as you do, is we're also thinking about criminal justice reform because if you leave school and you have been harmed through bullying or sexual assault, or you leave school without any literacy, it's all too often that you wind up in the criminal justice system, and there are far too many individuals with disabilities who are living behind bars. We now have 2.2 million Americans living in incarceration, and according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, we see that 32% of the people in prison and 40% in jail are our peeps. Joyce, they're people with disabilities, and so we care about them as well. Wow. That, and by the way, what is your website? It's www.respectabilityusa.org, but we also have a separate website on a separate issue that we're very excited about. It's respectability. It's actually the respectabilityreport.org, and the respectabilityreport.org is our um, up-to-the-minute coverage of the presidential candidates and what they're saying about disability issues. Because as we know, Joyce, you have been so involved in the political arena for a long time. You have so many connections and contacts. What they do in Washington impacts people across the country. And we want to ensure that the next president of the United States cares about the one in five Americans who has a disability. So we're covering those issues at www.therespectabilityreport.org. I think that is so important. I really do. And Jennifer, what are you doing to continue to get this out to people, that, you know, the people with disabilities know to go to that site? What, what else can we do? Of course, we're talking about it right now, and I'll tell you what, I am going to bring it up again on other shows. Um, but what can, what are we doing? How can we get that news out? Well, first of all, we're looking for volunteers. So anyone who's listening who would like to volunteer with us, um, please just send us an email or just join us on 
Facebook or Twitter and, and tweet or Facebook, uh, you know, private message us and let us know you'd like to get involved. Um, but we're reaching out to the presidential candidates. We've done a um, candidate questionnaire of all the presidential campaigns. Very happy to say that both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton filled out the entire questionnaire. Many of the Republican candidates took it very, very seriously and filled out the, cam- the, the candidate questionnaire. Unfortunately, Donald Trump is not yet one of them. So one thing people can do is to go to his events or to his headquarters and encourage him to answer the disability questions. It's incredibly important because he's the potential um, or likely um, nominee of the Republican Party, and we need to know where he stands on employment, on health care, on transportation, on everything that matters to people with disabilities. We really have no clue what his uh, policies are, and we really need him to be answering these questions for all of us. Well, hey, people listening, I know people listening to this show from both parties, uh, but you heard it. You know, it, it is only fair you want to show both sides, but you can't show both sides unless you participate. So, uh, Jennifer, respectability, uh, the respectability report, you can go right there and then get in touch with Jennifer. Uh, I, I really hope we make that happen because it's such a great thing for people with disabilities to be able to have access to that information. And uh, respectability, I believe, has become not only prominent, but prominent as a thermometer for uh, voters. When you go to uh, this, your site, does it review, for example, platforms of the candidates on both sides? So here's the thing, Joyce. You have to be very careful as a nonprofit organization. You cannot endorse a candidate because that would violate, you know, the law of nonprofits. Nonprofits have to be very, um, very nonpartisan, and they have to be very equal. So what we do is we give each candidate the identical questions and then the identical, identical format with which to respond so that we're for sure, for sure, treating everyone equally and fairly. And I think it's very exciting because, you know, when we sent the questions to the different presidential candidates, we saw that Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have really, really different views about how they would handle issues that are important to the disability community. I mean, there was a lot of agreement. Um, Both of them care a lot about enabling people with disabilities who want to stay in their own home or want to pursue work to be able to do so, but there really are some very big differences in how they would approach enabling people with disabilities to have a better future. Likewise, Jeb Bush and John Kasich and Ben Carson had very different views, but we are not allowed to just go into sort of one person's uh, campaign and, and assess them without doing everybody equally. So everything has to be very fair and square and nonpartisan. And in fact, we're now planning to roll this out to extend it to the swing governor races and the swing Senate races, which we're very excited about because governors play such an important role in the lives of people with disabilities. I'll give you an example. You know, whether or not they take you know, the Obamacare, as it's called, um, or whether they've rolled out the Medicare or Medicaid, can determine whether somebody can get life-saving medications or mental health medications or operations that they need. So there are a lot of really big differences. And also some of the Republican governors have done extraordinary things on employment for people with disabilities, whether it's Governor Stewart in South Dakota, or whether it's Governor Branstad in Iowa, or Governor Scott Walker, who's in Wisconsin, we've seen Republican governors really, really step up on the employment uh, front, and we've seen other governors uh, step up on different fronts. Wow. Well, I know, I know you've done a lot with the governors, from Markel, as you said, across the board, and uh, familiar with Governor Wolf. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're including all aspects because you know that vote as if your life depends upon it because it does by Justin Dart. That just fits exactly what you're talking about right now. And that leads me to this little, not little, huge problem we have, which is 
We have so many people with disabilities. 50 million? So there's a group of that percentage-wise that can vote. But we have to work to get people out to vote. You know, there are so many obstacles for many people with disabilities getting out to vote, which include access, you know, lack of access. I mean, there's, I forget someone just told me, I went to vote, but I could not get in the building, which, of course, I told them immediately that, uh, you know, who to contact and what to do. But your opinion, uh, first of all, the landscape, what do you see in all this work you're doing, Jennifer? What, what do you see as obstacles for people with disabilities getting to vote? So, first of all, it's a great question, Joyce, and it's a, a very, very important question, but I'd like to expand the question even um, beyond the actual physical voting on Election Day because there are barriers well before we get to the polls. So I'll give you some very specific examples. Most of the candidates, even the ones for president, are not putting captions on their videos. So if you're hearing impaired, how are you going to hear? hear what their messages are when there's no caption. Uh, Most of their social media is not screen reader accessible, and most of their websites are not screen reader accessible. Uh, Many of their events are held in non-accessible locations so that you can even go to events for presidential candidates and find that a wheelchair can't get access into an area or that there's no ADA seating area to sort of you know, make it more comfortable and protected. And you see, even at the Trump rallies today, where you might have 10,000, 20,000 people at an event, no sign language interpreter. So before you even get to the polls, there are all kinds of barriers to getting what they're saying on issues that are not about us, you know, right? And then there's the question of nothing about us without us. Do they have people with disabilities working on their campaigns? In most cases, the, in many cases, the, the answer is no. And so that's clearly an issue if you want to be sure that their campaigns have people with disabilities volunteering and on staff on their teams and on their advisories. And I know, for example, Hillary Clinton has an extremely robust disability committee that's involved, and Bernie Sanders has you know, a group of people with disabilities very active online uh, campaigning uh, for him. Um, but then it goes you know, well beyond that into other aspects of politics. For example, um, you know, in many states, you're not allowed to vote if you have a criminal record. And as I said earlier, there is nothing about having a disability that makes you a criminal. People with disabilities, you know, start off to be as good as anybody else. But if you are um, raped or assaulted or bullied consistently, or if you do not finish high school and have no diploma, the likelihood that you will start a life of crime obviously goes up whether you have a disability or not. But because you have this large number of people with disabilities in the criminal system, and every single year 600,000 Americans are leaving prison and jail, many of them are individuals with disabilities who are disenfranchised from voting, that literally... They do not get to vote. Now, this was just changed in the state of Virginia because the governor of Virginia said, hey, this is crazy. You're taking away people's constitutional rights to vote. Um, You're saying that because they, you know, they committed a crime, but now that they have paid their dues, they're returning citizens, they're not going to get to vote. That's not fair. So he changed that. But that is also a very important area for us to think about is ensuring that people who leave prison or jails Um, and have a disability, don't lose their um, right to vote. That's another aspect that's very important for our community. And you know what? I'm so glad that you brought all this up because that is so true. How can you get to the part about voting if you can't even get to all these campaigns you're talking about or see sign language interpreters or get in the building? Just And I have seen people speak where there was a sign language interpreter, but you couldn't see the sign language interpreter. So I right. mean, there are so many facets to all this. Plus, how can you read the platform on the website if it isn't accessible? So, you know, I'm really glad you're 
highlighting and bringing all this uh, out. That would be a great op-ed from you, uh, Jennifer, for the Washington Post, because it is so true. I mean, if you're not informed, how the heck are you going to vote? Um, exactly. And that, that, that is what's happening. I mean, do you have any idea about, uh, you know, your sense of voting booths, what they're like? Do you think the majority are accessible or what's your feeling about that? I think there's been a huge amount of progress with the accessibility of the actual voting itself. Um, that's partially because the voting booths are more accessible and the technology that they have is so much more accessible. But it's also partial, partially due to early online voting um, that, that happens around the country. Many, many states now, you can start voting as much as three weeks in advance of an election, and you can do it in a variety of locations, and that is a lot easier. Or you can do vote by mail. So there's now a lot more ways that people with disabilities can cast their ballot. So to be quite honest, I'm less concerned about the ability to cast the ballot on Election Day than I am with these two other things, the access to the campaign candidate primary information because of these uh, lack of accessibility to their websites and their events, et cetera, and also this complete disenfranchisement when people who are coming out of the correction system are denied access to their voting rights. Yes, and um, yeah, I agree with you. The other thing I am concerned about, you probably saw the article in the New York Times about people with disabilities that are uh, now living in nursing homes because the state could not provide care for them. And some right. of the people were like middle-aged, younger. And I'm thinking to myself, how the heck do all these people get to vote? Y- you know right. what I mean? So- so um, that, that is a really important question, and the New York Times, I, I really commend them. They've done two different page one stories on this issue in the last two weeks, very important, one on what's happening in South Dakota, and one was really specifically around what's going on in Maryland. Um, so it's really terrific because these were page one, top-of-the-fold stories in the New York Times, bringing some long overdue attention to the fact that literally more than 200,000 Americans who are not senior citizens but are people with disabilities are living in these senior citizen nursing homes because they've been forced to because there's no way for them to get the needed support they need from a health perspective or a daily living perspective for them to stay at home and in their communities. But in many cases, they do get to vote because frequently what happens is that they're set up through vote by mail or candidates and campaigns will really go to a nursing home and really try and get out the vote because uh, a lot of candidates want to, you know, access to, they consider it target rich in terms of getting a lot of votes in, in one place. But again, same barriers in terms of, you know, how are you going to get that information if that information is not fully accessible? Right. Well... You know, we've got a lot of work to do, but thank you, Jennifer, for doing so much for this country. Right now, though, we're going to go to break. If you just joined us, we're talking to Jennifer Laszlo, Ms. Rahi, the president of Respectability. I want to especially thank Highmark and Covestro Corporation for being sponsors of this show. Thank you so much. This is... Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Jennifer. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training in technology accessibility through their 
high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.vendorconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We're talking to Jennifer Laszlo Mizrahi, the president of Respectability and a national disability rights leader. Uh, Jennifer, we were talking about voting because of this work that you're doing, but you were telling me at break that you really think we're making progress for uh People with disabilities that have been in prisons, is that correct? Do you think in the future we'll see change there? Look, this is a very important issue to our community, and I I think that it hasn't been one that we've paid enough attention to. Partially, I think a lot of the leadership of the disability community is white, um, and a lot of the people who are behind bars, frankly, are African-American or Hispanic. So sometimes people in the disability community haven't realized, hey, that's part of our family, that's part of our cohort there that's behind bars. I'm going to give you some very specific examples that I think people in the audience should understand. So first of all, I was just in Baltimore today, and when I think of Baltimore, I frequently think of um, Freddie Gray this African-American young man who was killed by the police when he was in custody. And a lot of people think of him as a young African-American man. But the fact is that he also was a man with significant disabilities because he grew up poor in a house where they couldn't afford to deal with lead paint. He had very significant lead paint in his house, and he had very significant cognitive disabilities because of the lead paint. And the kinds of disabilities you get around that, frequently also with um, fetal alcohol syndrome, for example. And these are, you know, very significant disabilities that don't get enough attention. Um, It's the inability to follow multi-step instruction. So if you were to say to somebody when they're, you know, 10 years old, you know, here's a three-step process of something I want you to do in a classroom, you might not follow directions of the teacher, and you might not get a good grade, and then you might act out because you're not getting a good grade, and then before you long, you're suspended, and then you're expelled, and then you're no longer in school. So Freddie Gray was one of those kids whose disabilities were not properly addressed when he was in school, and he wound up repeatedly in the criminal justice system. But with an individual like that, if you give them a multi-step instruction like put your hands on your head turn around, and then, you know, go to your knees. That's a three-step set of instructions. Well, the person might get confused, and before you know it, the police misunderstand, think you're reaching potentially for a weapon, for example. Don't know exactly what happened with Freddie Gray when he was in that vehicle and when he was killed, but I can tell you for a fact that the majority of individuals who were killed last year by police were people with disabilities. They were people with disabilities. The Ruderman Foundation just did a terrific report with uh, David Perry and with other experts, um, and a really terrific report. But what people also don't know is that in prison, this is a very important factor because there's something called prison adjustment that is highly valued in prison. You're supposed to follow these multi-step instructions. Do this, and then do that, and then do this. And if you have a disability and you can't follow it, maybe because you can't follow multi-stage instructions, maybe because you're deaf and you literally can't hear them, frequently you are punished with solitary confinement. 
which is a horrific abuse of somebody's oh. brain. Yeah, someone in solitary. I mean, I was just with a friend of mine who has epilepsy, and for his quote-unquote own protection, this young man with epilepsy, because he had seizures and they were afraid, you know, what if he had a seizure at night and he was in his cell with somebody else, what would happen, whatever, whatever, they put him in solitary for 10 years. 10 years. Is that the craziest kind of policy? I mean, who puts an individual in solitary for 10 years? He went into prison when he was 16 years old. He spent over 16 period year period of time. Um, so he le- when he left prison, uh, he was twice the age he was when he went in. But 10 of the 16 years he was behind bars, he was in solitary, which of course leads to, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other things. So we have got to get around thinking through. Oh my God, the that is so terrible. That is terrible. Yes. I mean, I can't envision it for two days. Ten years. Ten years. This was his accommodation for having epilepsy, solitary, for ten years. And this is recent. This is not like in the 40s or something. This is recent. And this, you know, if you look at the work being done by Talila Lewis at Heard, who is a superstar in our community, where she is standing up for people who are hearing impaired, there's an individual who was, went to a court, and they told him, your behavior is so fabulous that you can leave you can leave incarceration now. You get off for good behavior. They did not give him an accommodation of anyone who spoke, who spoke sign language, and nobody was there to translate. He didn't understand what happened. He went back to the jail. He served two more years beyond his sentence because nobody gave him the accommodation of a sign language interpreter oh. to tell him, you can pack up your clothes and you can go home now. Oh, my God. Another, oh, and by the way, I know her, and I know her, and they are, that is fantastic. That They're organization phenomenal. is absolutely fantastic. I was very honored to be appointed to the advisory group for in, the National Technical Institute for the Deaf, uh, and that's how I, well, actually, I first met her when she received the Hearn Award. But right. that's where she is at uh, NTID. I mean, that's where she was teaching when I met her. And that work she has done. I mean, I can't even be, you know, when you were saying about abuse, Lord knows what happens to people in prison who are deaf that cannot, that do not have a sign language interpreter and cannot communicate and are vulnerable to bad people, including guards. I can't envision that. So you're right. We have so much work to do in this area, and I'm really glad that uh, respectability is also taking that up. But back to our discussion about the election, Um, you know what? I cannot believe how many people, just people in general, have registered to vote, which I hope include people with disabilities, but because you know if you want to make a difference, you have to vote. But you've been following how the candidates have included the disability community in their speeches when they're talking publicly or platforms, and I have been always so distraught in my life that when, that you know, people would talk about, Oh, and all of these groups, and they'd name all the protected class groups, but people with disabilities. Right. Or just would never even say people with disabilities. I mean, the first time, other than, of course, when President Bush signed the ADA, people just didn't no. mention this that often. I You're never understood right. why. The, the, the issue is that we have to demand it, Joyce. I mean, you're a very um, vocal person. I'm a very vocal person, but we need everybody with a disability, all 56 million of us, to be reaching out to the candidates from the school board and the county commissioner all the way up to President of the United States and saying to them they need to address our issues. Because really it's not just about voting, it's about them knowing that we're voting based on what they're doing on the issues. They need to know that we care, that they need to be putting out platforms on our issues and they need to follow up on those platforms and actually do serious 
and meaningful things. And frankly, we need to also be a little more generous with our praise when they do something good because I have seen, frankly, that we can be some pretty tough customers, that sometimes somebody that is a politician does something that's good for our community, but they did 50% of what we wanted and not 100%, and we keep looking at the glass half empty. Well, if we do more praise for the glass half full and we really um, showcase that, I think that we will see more people reach for the other half. And I'll give you an example. At the political conventions coming up, in Philadelphia is the convention for the Democrats, and in, um, in Cleveland will be the one for the Republicans, and we're working with our board members, Congressman Tony Coelho um, and Congressman Steve Bartlett, who will be giving out awards two different elected officials who've done amazing things for people with disabilities. Now, have these individuals done everything that we would want on every single issue? No, of course not. But they have done something extraordinary that they deserve an attaboy for in front of the community, and we need to say thank you. So that's one of the things that I think that we as a community can do more of, which is thanking people when they do actually step up to the plate and do the right thing. And I agree with you 100%. You know, I tell people, and you know me, although I have a for-profit company, I'm like a company with a social mission, and I will speak out and I care about equality, but you know, it's like when I first started 21 years ago, my company, it was never perfect at the beginning. It never was the way I thought it should be, you know, when someone was hired. But if a company was doing something, I did not sit there and say, well, but you should have trained all of your employees to know this. And, well, you should have had, you know, uh, captioning on all this other material, uh, which they should. But when I first started the company, I was just so thankful when a person would get hired. Now, of course... We have advanced so much, and I would expect everyone interviewed to, of course, have an interpreter and accommodations for whatever their needs are when they're employed. Of course, you should have video relay and screen readers, you know, the freedom, equality for all. But my point is that if I went to a company and I had the top person, the CEO, but let's just say there were some other people there and they weren't exactly right on I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And until we get to the place where we realize, yeah, it isn't going to be perfect, but we got to start somewhere. So I agree with you. I agree that when people are doing at least something, that we, the disability community, should praise them for what they are doing. And I hope that you will listen, all of my audience, I hope you'll listen to what Jennifer just said. So, Jennifer, I cannot imagine what the answer is to this next question because look at you. You're like passionate, intelligent, but wow, you're like a force to be reckoned with. So, my question is, who did you or do you or would you uh, look at as your role model? Well, when I was a kid, I had such a struggle learning and uh, just things were not going well for me, and I wound up uh, moving in with my great aunt who lived overseas, and she had her own business, and she was this genius of a woman, and she put me to work in her business, and I just really appreciated my great aunt Ella, who, you know, really taught me this, the strength that you can get from having a, a job. Now, mind you, I was only 13 years old. I went to work in her company when I was 13 every summer, and I loved it. I got a sense of self-confidence and self-worth out of having a job. I think that's a big part of why, Joyce, um, Bender, I love what you do at Bender Consulting, that you get people jobs, because I understand that employment is partially about the income, but it's also hugely about what you get in terms of um, you know, in terms of the self-esteem and the sense of friendship and community um, from having a job. So clearly my great aunt played a really, really major role in my life and it really showed me 
how important work is, and, and I think that's a big part of why respectability focuses so much of our energy around this employment issue. I mean, when you have a situation with only one out of three um, adults with a disability whose working age is in a job, and in fact, many of the people who do have a job, frankly, don't have a great job because they might be in a sheltered workshop in sub-minimum wage, or they might be in a part-time job or a low-level job when they're ready to take on more hours and more responsibility. I really believe in work. And so my great aunt, who literally was born in um, 1900, so she, if she were alive today, would be 116. So she was born a long time ago. She started her own company when she was 29, and she was still working when she was 95. Because she just wow. loved it. She loved it. I mean, she died when she was just one month short of her 100th birthday, but she still worked when she was 95, and she, her company was in 22 different countries, and she had, you know, employees all around the world, and just seeing with the joy that creating a company and creating jobs to bring to somebody really set a very high bar for me. I agree with you. Well, what a great role model. You know, I always say, when people ask me, when will you retire? I said, I'll be doing this till the day I die, so hopefully I'll be like your aunt. But I I just wanted to mention that, you know, as you know, Jennifer, this May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I always say it should be Mental Health Employment Month because the thing that does bring you, as you said, self-esteem and just social context is employment, of course, and it allows you to buy things and live like everyone else. But I so agree with you 100%, as you know, this is what, as you said, what I'm all about. But look what it did for you. Absolutely. I mean, it really was my salvation. But I will also say for people with a mental health difference, um, one of the best ways to find employment is self-employment. That, you know, that um, sometimes people have ebbs and flows um, with a disability and that one of the the real pleasures of self-employment and being your own CEO and before I had, you know, the responsibilities at respectability, um, in the past I did have my own company, that being your own boss, um, so you determine your own um, accommodation is something extraordinary. And I will tell you that there is a woman, Tanya Coslow, who works with me She's been working with me for decades, literally for decades, from her house. She helps me with all the things that I have challenges with, all the number stuff, because even now at age 52, I still can't do math on my own because of my dyslexia. I need another set of eyes. Sometimes when I'm formatting and frequently when I'm doing movements on computers, I I have a lot of difficulty with that. And so by having my own company, she started working for me when I had my own company literally decades ago. And even today, now that I'm working at respectability, she still is helping me out. And that's one of the things I think for people with a mental health difference that can be a good idea for them is to figure out what they're really good at that they can do well enough that they can get enough clients that they can build in supports and accommodations out of their own budget. Yeah, and as you said, flexibility, be in control, um, I mean, that, that is a great suggestion. Well, when I was reading all the things you've done, which I did not read to the listeners all the things you've done because I wanted time to interview you, but um, I just was so impressed with everything you've accomplished, Jennifer, and most importantly, how your life has been serving and helping others. But if you had to list one thing as your greatest accomplishment, what would that be? Um, Well, I'd like to think that my greatest accomplishment is ahead of me and not in back of me. Um, My goal is certainly to significantly reduce the stigmas around disability, so that people with disabilities will be able to achieve the American dream just like anyone else. I, as a parent, have a vested self-interest in this because this is the kind of world that I want my children to be raised in and to live in and to be, God willing, able to eventually, you know, get married and have their own kids. So I'm hoping that, uh, that, that with the amazing leadership of people like you, Joyce Bender, and with people like Tony Coelho and, 
and, and so many people, whether it's at the USBLN or the ORC or, or, or at AAPD or so many, or Tallulah Lewis, there's so many good people doing good work. I'm hoping that collectively we'll be able to achieve equality. I think, you know, in my lifetime, you know, I think about the changes on race. I grew up in North Carolina. I remember segregated water fountains. I remember segregated bathrooms. Um, still there's fights in, in North Carolina over bathrooms for people who are transgender today. So, but I do see that there's been a lot of movement. We have an African-American president, and we have African-American billionaires like Oprah Winfrey and the owner of, of BET Network. Um, but we have a long way to go for African-Americans. We have a long way to go for people from the LBGTQ community. Um, but I think that our community, the disability community, has more distance to cross than any other currently persecuted minority group in America today, and we are the largest minority group in America today, and the only one that anybody can join, as you know, at any time due to accident or illness. So that is my dream. That is my hope, and I, and I know that you and others share that hope. Yes, we, I do. I do. Well, first of all, Jennifer, it has been absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, we will bring you back so that we can follow up on the respectability report, but I know how busy you are, so thank you so much for being with us. Such an honor and a pleasure, Joyce. Your contribution to the disability movement is phenomenal. What you do for young people with disabilities, what your company does to help people with disabilities have the dignity and the financial security of work is nothing short of amazing. So I want to thank you for your leadership that really helps all of us. Well, thank you so much. But Jennifer, I'm going to allow you to leave a message with our listeners today. What would that message be? So Respectability is a new organization, and we need the help of a lot of people. So if people are interested in getting involved, I hope they'll email me at jenniferm at respectabilityusa.org or go to our website at www.respectabilityusa.org. Thank you for having me, and thanks to the listeners. Oh, our pleasure. Well, we end every show with a quote. And that quote today is, nonviolence is not a garment to be put on and off at will. Its seat is in the heart, and it must be an inseparate part of our being, said Mahatma Gandhi. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.